Hey guys, we produce this podcast for no other reason than to have a positive impact on the lives of you guys, the listeners, by sharing the stories and lessons of some incredible business owners. If you'd like to support our show, please head to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, rate us five stars and leave a review. Your review would be greatly appreciated and keeps us going. And now back to the show. Hello, legends. Today, I catch up with Cub member Bruce Morris, the founder and CEO of Motoractive, a company in the automotive aftermarket industry that has been in operation for over 30 years and generates over 40 million in annual revenue. Bruce was one of the wisest business people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. We discuss how to leverage grassroots marketing, building relationships with key people of influence in your target market, how to recruit correctly and build a team that is resilient and can overcome the adversities that business throws at you. And Bruce shared his key lessons in how to overcome the adversities of running a business for over 30 years. I am definitely a better business person after speaking to Bruce, so I hope you will be too. Enjoy the show. Bruce, welcome to the show. Um, Why don't we just start by you actually sharing more about your business? Because I've never interviewed someone that has your type of business. Well, great. Uh, thanks, Daniel. Great to be here. Um, look, I, it's funny when you do think something for a long time, but I don't think it's that interesting. Probably the biggest thing is is being in the in the game a long time. I've got a business I started in 1990, uh, so that's 33 years. And um, this is before I was born. Well, it's before a lot of people were born. <laughs> right? But what, what, I, what I talk about sometimes is it was before things like the internet was born. Wow. So to give people perspective, you say 1990, it's, you know, how much different can it be? You go like it was, there was no internet, no email, no social media. And and when people put that in perspective, as, you, as you're younger, right, you go, well, how, how did you communicate? How did you do things? How did you, how did you get anything done? And it's a good question. It was a slower paced world. But, um, you know, we had a, I remember when a fax came in, for example, of just drawing uh, on a sheet of paper and being able to send it through a machine was groundbreaking and amazing to me, right? And you, and you look at what we can do now. So it was a very different style of business. So a startup then was completely different to now because you imagine if you took away all the technology connectivity that you could start a business with now and you go, well, you have none of that. And I remember I, w- I, I used to start with no office or anything, so I had a fax machine in the linen press of my where I lived, my house. And uh, we'd communicate with, dealing with the US then. Uh, I, I'd send faxes that day and, and I'd kind of slightly hear the faxes come back overnight, go get them out of the linen press in the morning, and that was how I communicated with our main US supplier. So you just think how that works, right? So it's slower but – it was a bit like when people travelled by ship to, to the UK, right? Still got done though, just took took longer. But everybody, I think the difference is everybody has the same issue to deal with. But uh, I think people, look, it's just an interesting observation of how things were to how they are now. And uh, probably the thing I'm, I'm happiest about over those years is the ability to adapt uh, to whatever's going on now. That's probably the hardest thing when you come from a completely different era almost is adapting to the game if you don't adapt, you, you're going to die. So. Well, well, I certainly want to focus on that topic then because you're right. You've you started a company before internet and it's a thriving company 
uh, still today. And I'm sure that must have created some uh, adversities for you along the way and having to adapt. But, but so you started Motor Active is the name of the business. Uh, it started in 1990. And uh, can you explain what the business is now, how it's set up, what it sells, what it does? It's fundamentally the same business. So we're a classifier as a wholesale distribution business. So we either represent another brand, like a global brand, or we've created some of our own brands. And we sell them into the automotive, what's called the automotive aftermarket. And the after, automotive aftermarket's a place where you, you modify or do something in your car or buy things for your car after you've bought it. So nothing to do with dealerships. It's all the things you might do with or on your car afterwards. And so we buy products from different parts of the world, including and, and develop products here in Australia. And we sell them uh, into places like Super Retail Group and Repco and Autobahn, those specialty retailers. Uh, a bit a bit online, but we grew up in a bricks and mortar environment and online's still a very small part of our business. So that wholesale distribution that so we import it or we create or design something, get it manufactured somewhere else. We don't make anything ourselves, but we design a lot. Well, you make brands. Am I not, is that not correct? So, for example, you'll go find products like car products um, to sell through retail stores. You'll go find them in the US or wherever they manufacture them. You then create a brand, is that correct, or that product, or you'll use the brand, you, you'll use an existing brand? Yeah, some, it's, it's, it's both, okay. right, depending on what it is. So yeah, our biggest brand is a brand called Meguiar's and they're car care products, and we take them exactly as they are in the chemical sense out of the US, it's all, it's all quite advanced chemistry, but say all the accessories. So if you think you're going to polish the car or wax the car or even wash the car, you've got certain chemicals you're going to wash it with, then you need what we describe as accessories. It could be a drying towel or different cloths or all these accessories that go with the chemicals. So we will design all those and get them made in China or Asia and pay a licence fee back to Maguire. So there sometimes there's a mixture of, and then other things we'll take, uh, we've got a brand called Colorspec, which is a paint mixing program that we sell in through Super Cheap Auto, and we design that whole concept and then we take different um, components of that that are manufactured by different companies, some in Australia, some offshore, and create a system and put our own brand on that and then we build that brand. So it can be uh, one or the other or a combination of the two. And is there one you prefer? So, for example, with Maguire's, you're, I mean, you're licensing the, the ability to use the Maguire brand here. The other brand, which I forgot what it was called. What, what? A colour spec. Color spec. Yep. That's your brand. You Correct. guys created that. Yeah. Is there one you prefer? Is there one that you find works better, or are there pros oh, and cons look, between? Yeah, I think something you create yourself. I guess you you, you might be you're prouder of or something. Uh, and you get the license to do anything you want with that brand. That that's actually very exciting because when we represent someone else's brand, particularly a global brand. Um, so we both do Macquarie's and we do Mobile One lubricants. Uh, both very big global brands, and they have lots of guidelines on how you use and represent the brand and you're following guidelines all the time and and some of them can be quite restrictive because they're conservative companies uh, so they can kind of go we could do wonderful things with that brand or that product but but we're governed by what how we say it what we say uh, so it, it's so it stays on brand globally whereas I guess when you have your own brand you create that you give it a name and identity personality and um it's quite exciting. I can wake up in the morning and go, you know, today we're going to change tack with a Colorspec brand, for example, or it's at an event and we go, we can do anything 
we want with that brand. And that's that's so it's that's nice exciting. to have that ownership. Exciting, yeah. right? And you learn a lot from that, right? And so your company then, so you get all these products, whether they be your own or or, or products existing, and you are a wholesaler that sells them directly to um, uh, aftermarket car retailers. Yes, they're car accessory retailers. Um, it's quite a big market in Australia. It's it's yeah, in huge the region. Market. It's it's yeah. a pretty good business. A lot of other smaller countries is more like what you call uh, do it for me. So they've got places where you might take somewhere we get lower low labour costs and get things done for you. Whereas Australia is very much a DIY market. So I guess we describe it when the automotive aftermarket. But what's I wouldn't say unique but different for the other compared to the other club members is I see most people are either in. B2B business or they're in B2C business, selling direct to a consumer. So we're in the B2B2C business. So we a lot more moving parts in that. So the, the the end user or the consumer is right at the end of that, but we're really selling to a business in the middle who are going to be one of those, say, retailers. So you, you shift sometimes out who your customer is because it's the people who can sell the product for you so you have to understand how to do the B2B bit, but you have to know how to market like a B2C organisation to pull that demand through because the guys in the middle, the retailers, will sell your product and they will help you, but they expect you as, say, the brand owner or representative to drive the demand through their stores to take it off the shelf. And a big problem I see, a common mistake in this is people believing, oh, if I just get my product on the shelf, it's so good that's all I need to do and it will sell itself. And of course, that would, I would say that would fail nearly 100% of the time because it doesn't matter how good the product is, it, nothing sells itself. What would you say some of your key lessons or what are some of the keys that make a product successful on the shelves, on the retail shelves? Well, I think it's the order in which you do things. I think um, instead of focusing on where you've got, you've got this product and you want to get it on a shelf, the idea is you, you have to start demand for it before you put it on the shelf. And so that brand, you've got to build the brand itself, not just the awareness of what the brand, how it's said or how it looks, but it, I think develop a distinctive personality to the brand. It has to have a personality. Otherwise, it's just a commodity. And a commodity is a different play because commodities are around price. So the brand have a personality and really find a way to get demand for your product before it lands on the shelf. Yeah, so so w when you've created that brand, that personality, you want the consumer to be aware of it before they see it. Yeah, you want to have people asking world. you, yeah, well, where do I buy that? Yeah. You go, well, hardly, hardly you, anywhere at the moment, right? You, you actually have to do that. And how can you achieve that? Well, I, I, we've always done it with grassroots. So if we say we're selling stuff for cars. We're selling stuff that makes your car look better or well-maintained, all those sort of things, whether it be car care products or lubricants. And we will go to grassroots events. I started the business and um, I was by myself naturally when I started and um, I had like a high-ace van with a, the trestle tables and a canopy and I went to uh, car shows and you know, put the product out in display and would talk to people who had cars in the car show and explain to them what's great about the products try and get some in their hands. We might do sampling. We might give people certain things. We might sponsor a person that was really well known in there to get people to use it and, and try and rave about it. And so we would generally try and always build through word of mouth at the beginning so you get other people to 
use your product and then they start talking about it for you. They recommend it to other people. So it's quite organic, but I would describe it as more grassroots marketing and we do it exactly the same way all the time. Now We always take that same formula. We still yeah. do these events. And well, the um, thing is too, you sell to such a, like a – it, it, it's, a, it's a passionate group of people, like people that are, you know, um, uh, editing their cars or updating their cars, changing colours or looking after their cars, whether it be a big, you know, big change or a small change. They're, they're passionate car people. They love cars. And there's definitely, I'm sure there are lots of car shows, car clubs, car things that you guys can then get involved in, network, show off your product. And really most, you know, if you have a, a product you're selling, you can find, okay, well, where, who am I selling it to? And by being grass, grassroots, you're saying you are literally going to where those people are and showcasing your product like face-to-face. Is that what exactly. you're saying? So try and yeah. think of it. That's, that's dead right. They're, they're a passionate group, but they're just um, the core of your audience. They're not your total audience, right? So you start like you, you throw a pebble in a pond where that pebble – Hits is the splash point, and you see the the pond. If it's still, it all ripples out from the splash of that rock. So try and think of that that sort of car enthusiast that we're talking about is just our initial point of impact. And what you're doing is getting them on side and them talking about your product that radiates out over time to a much broader audience. And so it would be, for example, you've got somebody cool Mustang in their driveway and all the other people that live around that that person's place see the cool black Mustang in the driveway and he or she's out there, you know, washing it and polishing it every uh, every few days. We love those guys, right? We love those guys that do it every few days. We have to do a lot of product. But all the rest of people look at that and they've got their own cars. It isn't the same. But who do you think they're going to ask about what's the best stuff yeah, to for use advice. for my uh, Toyota Camry or whatever it is because they're going to ask the person who spends all their time on it, right? So those people become ambassadors for you in their own way because they get asked. We don't expect them to go sell it for us but they do get asked. And we do exactly the same principle when we go into retail. So say, look, Super Cheap Boy is a good example. They're the biggest in the country retailing-wise and um, they have 3,000 people working there, right? So we always go to the people who work in the stores who, who don't get a lot. They just work at retail, not getting paid a lot of money, uh, work pretty lousy hours. Uh, and we try and get the product in their hands, you know, so they can try it because they become kind of like that enthusiast. They're not – some of them really are. Some of them, a lot of them love cars who work in car, uh, car accessory places. And they do the same thing. They're the ones talking to all the people. So if, if you sort of – win their hearts and minds about your brand uh, when someone comes in and says, oh, what's the best uh, car polish for my whatever? Wh- whose brand do you think they're going to recommend? The one that they've used or that you've talked to and they understand it a bit better. So uh, it's the same principle. It's, it's using other people who like what you do, what your brand stands for, how your products work, uh, to tell other people. And that's how you start it. I love the analogy of like throwing the pebble in the pond. Really, the, the aim of the game is to throw you know, a lot of pebbles in the correct pond and to allow those splashes to ripple through and, and, and collect everyone. And, and the other thing I love too was, yeah, it's right. When you are talking to someone, you're asking for their advice. Like you're asking, what's your opinion? What should I use? They're probably going to tell you the one that they know most about. 
Of course. Whether they know most yeah. about the product or they've used the product the most or they know the brand the most. And so really connecting with those people, with those key people and teaching them about your brand and what it stands for, teaching them about your product uh, is going to help. Their, it's going to make it more possible. It's going to make it more likely that they share um, that they share your product with others. Oh, absolutely. And, and, of course, it makes it far more authentic. These people are not uh, paid to talk about your brand. Yeah, product. that's the other thing. They're getting asked. So when they go, look, my favourite product is this, and they might go something like, I use this product, it does a great job and it just smells awesome. Right? We get a lot of that because the, the products do smell really good for, for car care products. And so it can be sometimes things we don't think is going to be that big a touch point and other people go, oh, yeah, it really does smell great. And you wouldn't then believe what difference that makes to people's perception of how well the product performs. Because if it smells like crap, most people go, yeah, it's like, it smells bad. It's going to do a bit of a bad job. If it smells great, somehow it does a better job. So um, it's far more authentic. And, and I'm big on authenticity, right? In, in the modern day world, I'm very big on it. And, and it's almost the new black to me, the authenticity of your business and your brand and your message to people, it, it's the biggest differentiator you've got because there's a lack of it now. And how do you embody it. it? So how do you show the world uh, that you and the company are authentic? I think things like that, we just, we do demonstrations. We talk to people genuinely. We we let them ask us questions. So when we go to these events, um, the biggest thing we're doing is, yeah, we sell product at events, but most of the time we're there to answer people's questions. Yeah, so you you're can personally present. Us. It's that yeah, grassroots yeah. style. They come up and go, so what's the difference between that product and that product? Why is this product good? And we have a conversation with them, right? And it's amazing when you have a lot of conversations, how people walk away, they might not have bought anything, but they walked away remembering, going, I walked, walked up to the brand owners and I had these questions and they were, they were pretty good answers. Good company. And oh, it feels it feels good, and and we just don't bullshit to people. To be honest, that's that's the biggest thing about authenticity. You've got to believe what you're saying, right? You, it cannot be a made up story. So, um, and look, because I own the business, uh, your the values of the business, uh, you get the benefit uh, with a single owner of of your business is a direct reflection of your own core values. It always is for a business owner, right? You, you're not going to build agree. a business that you own with a different personality to you. It's yeah, almost impossible I completely to do, right? agree. Why would, you, why would you do that? Well, I just think that a business typically or almost always is a direct representation of the owner or the leader. It has to be, right? And and the benefit for me um, is I've always been run it solo. Uh, so if you say have – partnership of three people, right? Sometimes the values get confused because you might start off three people thinking similarly with that idea or, or, or start of the idea of a business. And then over time, life gets in the way and changes people. Uh, all people change over time. But those three people, say, that started can end up on different pathways for different reasons. And that's where it goes wrong because your, your say, message or your authenticity, your core values can get muddled because the partners can get changed. That's uh, a very good point. So the solo bit is is good. So you're the, you're, you're the sole owner of the business and therefore your business could be, you, I mean, can be truly authentic to yourself. And I, no one's ever said that to me before. You know, if you have two, three owners, the authenticity can get muddled because all the owners are their own individual people and they might have their own individual visions for the company or they might change over time. Or, yeah, change in you know 
uh, uh, just like if you if you're married, right? People are married, and over time, you end up growing in different directions. Mm. That's why you end up you know, divorced yeah. or something. But in business, it's the same principle. The more partners or people you have with a stakeholding um, can change and row their boat in different directions, uh, just out of just life. And uh, then you then then it becomes more tricky because you don't have one person going. These are our core values, and. Uh, my advantage has been I had the same core values when I started and I've just been able to insist that they're carried on and that way when the culture is formed for the business because all this leads to culture, of course, of, of a business, that there's no misunderstanding there because there's not a number of people, say, talking to a new employee, describing what's important to them. Uh, they, they're going to talk to me and then the people that report to me uh, are really just pass on that message or core value process. So we get a lot of consistency and create a very distinctive culture um, and, and that's a key part that's also can be missing in a successful business uh, is the culture can get fragmented or fractured and um, it's a slippery slope after that. Yeah, uh, business can crash very quickly once your culture, once you're – yeah, and, and, but on the flip side, there can be bad – because there's a business culture entirely and then often there can be like segmented culture where a team might be having a bad go at a moment or, or, or a part of the company might be having a bit of a bad culture. And when you fix that, it's almost instant the, the improvement as, as, it, as it is instant the negative if it's a negative culture, if it becomes negative. Like when you fix a bad culture, the improvement or the benefit to the business is almost is, is the, is instant. Oh, absolutely. And, and, of course, the opposite applies when you don't fix it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're, they're drag, it starts off like a little problem with one one person that might be so-called toxic these days. and um, But over time uh, that just acts like a vacuum and starts to suck everybody into it if you don't take action on it and restore the culture or you know, remove the problem. And um, you know, th- these days that's harder and harder to do and um, this gets back to how you recruit and the trial times you have people on, uh, people can be rushed into. So we saw this a lot in COVID of feeling like you had to have more people, so you just hired anybody. And I mean, the people, yeah, you don't. You, you're best to do without people than hire the wrong people because you will screw your culture and you'll do it quickly with hiring the wrong people quickly. And then you see people trying to unwind that, right? And uh, so I think people are a quick. Uh, sometimes in the wrong direction, thinking it's a resource, uh, and you go, you don't don't do it at the expense of your culture, because if you if you really damage your culture, it can take so long to repair it, and maybe it's never the same. What I have found that made us get very good at recruiting, and um, because you'd say, Laura, we're very good right now at recruiting. No, yeah, we have a hundred percent retention of, of staff for like two or three years. Wow, and um, mind you, I mean. I've removed a couple of people, but no one's ever left. Um, and But I, it wasn't the case at the start of the company. The start of the company, we had a lot of staff turnover. And I think that's the case with a lot of people. Obviously, I speak to a lot of business people like this. But but what I found helped me the most um, in terms of knowing who should be on the team is having a strong culture, is once you've established your culture – and you can see it. It's like an alive thing. You're like, yeah. okay. Then you can see other people like, okay, they definitely will fit that culture. And you, you kind of keep just adding, you keep bringing on people that, that will, yeah, that fit that 
that body, that what, what we stand for or, or, or how we act. And, and I found that to be the most successful thing. The other thing that you were saying, and I'd be curious on your opinion on this, is that there are toxic people you know, and you will find them like those culturally toxic people. I used to watch those people like a hawk. I'd find them straight away and I'd just be plodding to get rid of them because I didn't want them anywhere near the company because they spread like cancer. Like yeah. it, it, it's shocking. I have recently though taken a more mature approach and, and so long as they are a cultural fit to the company, so as long as culturally um, th- this person is aligned, um, I've, I've realised that most of the time when someone's being negative or being culturally negative, they're just not happy and they might not be happy about something that's happening in life or they might not be, be not happy about something that's happening at work. And if you can find out why they're not happy you can normally fix them and once you, or fix the problem for them. And once the problem's fixed, they become great contributors once again. And we, we recently actually like the start of this whole start of the year, I've gone on a big rampage, not rampage, not the right word. I'm really not using the right words today. Big rant. Yeah. Big rant. I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been really stressing it to the team that I want to promote like honesty and communication. And the reason I want to promote it is because if people are just honest about something that, or oh, look, I'm really not enjoying this, or I don't like this, or I hate this person's leadership style, or I, you know, this person's micromanaging me, or whatever it may be, then the company can fix it. The person that you're improving leadership of is now a better leader, and because you've worked through that with them, and the person that um, had an issue is now a happier, a happier team member, and and you know isn't toxic anymore. They 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 really love the company, and they love all the team, and they're doing a great job. So I think sometimes as a business owner, it's, it's important to look, okay, if this person's, you know, acting a bit toxic, is there something we can fix? You know, because I do think there's value in holding people for as long as possible. Like there's, there's great value in, in having people with you for a very, very long time. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, look, I, I absolutely, I think so. I, I think you can't just hire perfectly fitting people. You just run out of them. You know, so I think that you're dead right. You've got to believe that, that first of all, your culture has to be attractive to them. If they're actually coming in because they like your culture, it's a much easier fix when it goes off the rail. It's it's not if they come into you because, you know, I saw the job and the, the money looks really good and all this. Sort of, like it's just like if, if there's no questions about the job and who the people are and all this sort of stuff, we know they're not even interested in the culture. And And – they're going to be a problem. That's right? interesting. So a good you, thing is to you hope when you're interviewing someone that they ask about what the culture is like. Yeah. You, and you can put the lead out for that. You can start talking a little bit about, you know, we focus a lot on whatever around here. And if they're just moving on to the next question, like that didn't matter, you know, they, you know they're not going to fit. It doesn't matter what they say, you know they're not going to fit. So I think um, uh, if they get the culture like it's attractive to them, they don't have to fit it perfectly. They have to want it because they'll adjust and fit the culture. They won't necessarily come with it, but it's got to like, oh, we love your culture. I heard all about your business or somebody, you know, so my, my friends or whatever it is that goes, I, I like that segment, like the market segment's good for us. People who, who like cars want to work for us and then they like our culture and you've got, got two things going for you, right? And then that way if uh, they can, they might start off great and have like go through a divorce or a close death in the family or something, just other personal issues, right, that knock them off um, – their trajectory and it's unfair I think this whole word toxic calling virtually everybody toxic I mean the, the definition of 
toxic. I'm not sure what it is anymore, but it's a low level of thing. Toxic used to be something that was really toxic. It was like poison. Toxic was actually oh. bad. Yeah, <laughs> like someone saying a few things or behaving uh, maybe. Uh, it's called human. Yeah, it's like, it's like uh, you I know, agree. someone drank too much at a Christmas party. I go, that doesn't make them toxic. That makes them maybe stupid on the night. But let's. Uh, so what I've tried to do is build up the team that's there with the culture to have resilience because you can't be offended at everything people say to you, right? So you've got to get that that culture right and that culture will tolerate um, things that they may not 100% like or agree with. You, you've got to, to, you've got to yeah. just go, well, so that's his opinion. It doesn't. It doesn't yeah. matter. You've got to – and that way, one, that, that team will tell you if you've got a misfit. It's usually not me that is looking around. I might sense something, but it will be, it'll be people telling me, going so-and-so, because I'm like, how are we looking on that new hire? And we, we've earned an absolute mandatory six months uh, a trial. You, we you do too. You can't have less than six months, right, because three is easy to fake, six is hard to fake, and you'll generally find it out. And we'll pressure test that. Second three months, yeah, we'll get someone settled in, how they learn, they're going okay, and then we will ramp it up in that last three. So, But uh, usually I'll hear well before then about people going, yeah, I'm not I'm not seeing it. If you're like four months in and your team's going, yeah, they're not That's really, not yeah, well, how do you think they're going to come good, right? So you better to make a decision quickly. But uh, I think if you've got past that and people do have their issues, you should accept them as people have just got some issues and go, so what's 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 going on here? And I, I, I just like you say, you've got to be able to have those frank conversations and they've got to understand a frank conversation may in some way upset you and you need they need to suck that up because how are you supposed to be honest with people if you're not prepared to say something that they may not see fr- from your viewpoint? Now, yes, you've got to think about how you say that, but you've got to shape that. And I think with people they either then go, okay, I get it. I probably am going through a tough time. I maybe need to work on that or change it. And we would work with that. It's when someone goes, nah, that's just, I'm not seeing it that way. You just go, look, it's just, you're going to have to be your best self somewhere else then. Um, I think it's important to, to sort of have that conversation and work on it a bit, but they have to be willing to work on it too, right? And if you've got two people working on it, like the, or the, or the business, whoever they're reporting to is, or the business and the person, and they started off okay, they'll probably be right. If one side is going, I'm just not prepared to work with it because they think you're just a dick or something, I don't yeah. know. You go, you just got to get it done. You got to have people go, you're really best to be somewhere else and get it get it done quickly. Well, what I like, that resilience, like you, you need to build a resilient team because you're right, you like you don't want everyone being open and honest and communicating and re- communicating respectfully. But at the same time, you don't want a bunch of like uh, – soft people who are just complaining and upset about everything and you feel the right to complain about this person put the pen down wrong, I don't like the way they did You know, you don't want that either. So you need you need a, a, almost to make sure people realise what are the important things and feel, you know, be comf- comfortable enough and confident enough to to share those things that, that you, you, know, you may disagree with or may not like. Exactly. And that, that then leaves you with just, people getting worried about the things that are worth worrying about. Yes. There's all this peripheral there's noise and comments and stupid shit that happens. Just stuff happens, right? In everybody's life it does. And you go, I don't know why you think a workplace would be immune from that. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. going to yeah. happen. Someone's going to crack the, the bad taste joke and go, yeah, 
I'm not sure I'd tell that joke to everybody yeah. type stuff. Someone would make a comment and you go, it's usually really innocent. And well, well, they don't even mean it. No, like, no one yeah. does. Most of the time people are not sharp-tongued in a good team. Um, and then if you've got resilience and people just – then no one, no one's offended really. Everyone just moves on and they would generally, generally laugh it off. Yeah. Right? I think today's world is just too – everybody's outraged about everything. And I think it's good to create an environment at work where, look, we don't need to be outraged about everything. We've got a common goal and a common mission and we need to be united and uh, in achieving that mission. And that means that we can't just be outraged about everything that anyone does within the team that you may not agree with. Yeah, because people are outraged about some things that don't even affect them. Yeah, that's, outraged, that's, that is what they get to outraged. Be outraged. Yeah, that it's is like, what they're outraged it's about. Like, that's outrageous, yeah. right? Uh, so, yeah, we, we, we try and that's all part of the culture, I think, um, is staying on mission, um, having inbuilt resilience. It's also when it's time to knuckle down on something, like it's a problem with the business or there's a challenge there and we've, we've all had them, right, through COVID in particular, you, you've got to have a team with that resilience that, that will just row the boat harder because you need them to and you, you really haven't had to make a big thing about it. They'll just row the boat harder mm. because they know they have to. It's much better than standing at the front going, okay, guys, you know, we really all got to dig deep. It's it's life-threatening. If you don't get this done, we're going to probably have to lay off some people. You, you just don't say that, right? People have got to sense that there's something to be done. Particularly we do it a lot with, you know, you notice since COVID uh, a lot more people get sick. Uh, probably the same number of times but they're that. sicker longer. Whatever you get now isn't like, oh, I'm off for a day or two days, people get something, it's a bug, and they're off for a week, right? And you want people to, that you know, might be off, but they'll still do their best to work from home. But in the end, you, you've got to have the rest of the team carry that missing person. And and they've got to have that resilience that go, well, of course, they, they just step into it. Not, it's not my job. Mm. And someone has to walk walk in and go, we need you to help out on this. My, all of my team are great. They'll just, you know, see, see a man down. And just go in and do whatever they have to do to cover that because mm. they know one day they might be down, right? They got sick and someone or a group of people is going to cover for them. I guess that would be a true sign of it. Sorry, that would be a great sign of a truly bonded team. That That's a cohesive team. You know, when when one arm's missing, they, 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 they fill in for that. There's no conversation about it or, you know, and that's how teams should work. And I, like recently – and we'll get off the topics of team soon because I want to talk about your start of your business and journey. But like recently, last year, at the end of last year, I wasn't able to work for maybe three or four months because my mum's sick, um, very sick. And um, and I didn't even tell really. I mean, I told the team what was going on, what why I wasn't in meetings and things. But I never even had to – I'm just thinking back. I never even had to say, hey, Laura, could you, you know, help me out with this? Or Anthony, could you – to be honest, the company just kept running. And it kept doing, if anything, it did better while I was gone. So, you know, but <laughs> I think a, that is a great that, sign of a great that's, team. That's telling you something else. Yeah. No, it went, it went better without <laughs> you either, right? Because uh, well, I'm distracting. Uh, I'm always doing things. But this is why I'm a huge fan. So I grew up um, as a kid in team sport and playing sport. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Maryland, out near Parramatta. My mum's from West, Mar- I'm my, Western suburbs. My mum migrated from, from Mexico and lived in Maryland. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah downtown Maryland. And uh, I grew up on sports, so I, I'm, I'm blessed I can play almost any sport really quickly. And um, I can't believe, you know, a kid, say, sitting in front of a screen versus playing sport, this is, this is chalk and cheese about the rest of your life because in business, if you 
the reason people will fill in for you when you, you had some time off or anybody else often is because they could, could have played a team sport. So if you're playing a team, the whole team never, very rarely plays well. Hardly any, if, you, if you've got 11, 13, 6 in a team, hardly any time does every member of that team play well. And 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 a, a successful team is the one that covers for, for where you've got weaknesses or someone off their game. And, and I think you learn things like that from a very early age about what a team sport is. And a business is a team sport. And, and if you don't have people willing to play a team sport, you've got the wrong people in the business. And so you grew up in Maryland's sport, obviously played a big part of your, uh, of your um, life and childhood. And obviously from what I said, that's what you're saying. You learned a lot about business actually from sports. And back then there was no internet um, there was a lot less accessibility to capital and things like that. Um, did you come from a family of business or because I imagine back then it would have been a harder time to start a business than it would be like today? Yeah, definitely a very different time. I, I think uh, uh, quite, a, quite a deal harder in, in some respects. So, no, I didn't come from a business family. You know, very humble beginnings with both my parents. I mean, dad was a storeman, mum worked, uh, you know, picking and stuff, very, very basic, went to a public school, you know, uh, went to the old fourth year or t- year 10 as they call it these days. So so all pretty basic. I'm not, not even quite sure what sparked my interest in, in starting a business. It's kind of interesting. I, I don't know. You just so you dropped out of school it. year 10? Well, I wasn't really dropping out then. I t- take offense at that, uh, Daniel. Sorry. Did, <laughs> no, you, did no, you do so, a trade or did you Yeah, did a trade. Because so, what everybody did, right, um, to go to year 12 um, – Generally, the only people that went to year 12 were going to uni and I really just didn't, didn't have the interest. I, I did very well at school actually, and like just scholastically, um, but there was a very clear pathway then that year 10 was going out to do a trade, which I did. I'm a fitter machinist by trade, um, and start work early and that was very much a pathway that goes if you're, say, better with your hands or you're more practical that you don't want to just be a doctor or a lawyer or something else. There was a very clear pathway so it wasn't ever seen as dropping out of School. It was just more of that was your pathway and you went right through to, to year 12 to go for further education because you needed that qualification to get into uni. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a different thing then. Um, and I remember I, I, they gave you careers advice, a lot more simple careers advice then. We had a lot less choices of, of what you could do. And that's what they do. They get you on a, on, a, on a career path with what you liked and what you wanted to do with your life, all that kind of stuff. And they would tell you, I, I I don't think it ever came up that I should ever go through to year 12, that they would go, you, this is the best pathway for you and it would be to do well for your you know, your school certificate level, if you like, and get out and do a trade. And that's, that's exactly what I did. And But so what, what led you to business? How did you start the business and why? Well, it's a good question. Um, I was looking back on that and maybe it's my memory fading, mate, because it was 33 years ago. Um, but often it's just these things, opportunities come up. It's like, you know, say that you know, standing by the river and the, the $100 bill floats down. It, it, it floats down and it will flow straight past you unless you grab it. But a lot of the time in life uh, where you end up is just the, op- the opportunities that come your way and do you take the opportunity or not? Do you wait on oh, there's a better opportunity coming along? Um, and um, So I was, what was your $100 note? Well, I was working in a business. I progressed from that trade background into these industrial consumable type things. So it was all industry related because when you come through that manufacturing, you kind of got that um, understanding and bias towards it. 
And it just happened um, that part of I, I worked my way up to a national sales management role, and part of my portfolio was these Meguiar's products. And Meguiar's is you know, really car care now, but at the time it was making products that, you know, you try and picture you 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 applied a special wax inside a mold, right? That molded a shape could be the boat hole or a molded component. Going to machine, it would act as a release wax that the with the, the plastic or the monomer into something and when the mould opened, you know, things would stick to the mould and this this would go in there and allow the component to pop out of the mould. And we had all these sort of industrial stuff that McGuire's invented back in the day. So they're under my portfolio. And, I, look, the company I was working for was getting bought out. I wasn't real pleased about that. Uh, these guys, uh, McGuire's, <coughs> the found, the original third generation of the, of the founder, McGuire, Barry McGuire, approached me about wanting to handle these products. So, that, so it just came along to go, I, I knew them. It didn't represent much of what I did, but I'm a, I'm a petrol head, right? So I grew up in the western suburbs, always loved my cars, right? So um, the opportunity, I suppose, to work with something that was all in that car hobby and you get a chance to, uh, to start a business. I didn't have anything, but just a chance to start something in an area that you're already really interested in. Um, it's not a big decision to have a crack. And, you know, in, I was early 30s then. Um, you think, well, like why not? So I, th- I think it's often as innocent as that. It wasn't thought out. It wasn't like me dreaming I really need to do this or invent something. It was just an opportunity that came along with people I knew um, and, and just gave it a crack. And, and you gave it a crack because... It was the op- – it was just, I'm young, I've got an opportunity here. So Maguire's asked you basically to represent their products. Yes. So someone, the, the note fl- fl- flowed in the river past you and you thought, you know what, I'm young. It's a note that uh, is in uh, – uh, that uh, it's a currency for a country that I really like to be in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pick yeah, up yeah, that exactly. bad boy. <laughs> I didn't realise at the time but US dollars worth a lot. So maybe it was a $10 bill and I was probably faced with going to a $10 bill. There might be a $100 bill coming down the river next. And I've never had that view. I'll take the $10 take the bill and try and turn it into a $100 bill, right? Not wait for the, the better offer to come along. And so, did you need capital? Did you need capital to start or how did you manage that? Well, this is the thing that was missing, right? You don't realise all this stuff, the dream of, oh, start your own business and get it started. And you go, um, um, you know, like, uh, where will I, where will I get the money for that, right? And I didn't have any. Um, so... Um, that was a bit of an obstacle. The, the the Americans gave me a bit of a hand at the start, more like funding the inventory and all this sort of stuff because you don't realise how fast you're going to burn cash uh, in a product-based business. And I think that's probably the difference if you look across the membership of CUB. If you're in the service business, it's often you start off with just your own time. So you don't have a lot of outgoings other than your time. When you're in the product business, you've got to buy the product before you sell it. So the money's got to come from somewhere. So I got a... Uh, I bought a house uh, several years early, had a bit of equity in it. So I got a, a loan, an overdraft loan for 50000 but you have to mortgage your house. And this is what people often don't understand going into their own business. Uh, and lots of people say it to me, go, hey, there's no way I'd mortgage the family home to start a business. And I go, if you're not prepared to mortgage your house, don't start a business. Just don't go there. Because the bank looks at it first thing and goes, why would we lend you our money when you're not risking anything? 
So it's your ability and appetite for risk. And I think that's the first lesson I probably learned is you need to manage risk and you need to be okay with it because you're going to risk the house your family lives in. And they, they will take it from you if it goes bad enough, by the way. They don't want to, but they will. Um, but I think if you can't manage that that understanding of risk, you'll never manage the rest of it. But like the, I had that, the deeds to my house the bank had for 25 years. And how long did it take you to to get that money back or, or to, to start? How long did it take for the business to become successful and to pay you that 50 grand back? Well, it sort of happens in phases, right? You, it's, but it's years, like it's a slower build then, right? Um, because you don't, you didn't scale at the same pace that you can scale now out with different communications and uh, process. But um, it, it was hand to mouth. So what happens is you kind of get these phases where you think you're on top of it and you say you you got some borrowings and you're building up some cash. Now, a simple way to, to create cash flow is you have to make profit. But people thinking you're going to create cash from no profit is in a different type of business. It's a different business model. That's the tech industry where you're selling thin yeah. air, right, um, or Bitcoin. You're just selling, I'm not sure what Who you're selling. Who knows what it I is. Don't worry yeah, I, I'm with you. <laughs> but, I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't know, but everybody else has to go. So you make the money, you pay the tax on it, you bank it, and you leave it there. And that creates equity in your business and you build that up. And you have to do that for years to build up enough of your own profit and then you're supplementing that with debt, with borrowed money. And you're still mortgaging your house but you're creating some of your own cash. And it takes years and then what happens is you, you, you build that up and then you have to make a play. So it might be going into a new retailer, spending more on marketing, spending more on inventory to, to grow your business. And then that sucks up all the cash again. And so typically along the way, if you've been in business for, for, for a while, you sail very close to the wind a number of times. So for me, it's been three times where three times I thought I'm going to lose the business. Now, remember, you, you're going to lose the business, you're going to lose your house. You lose a lot. So it's been three times, right? And they were spaced out, but one was probably about eight years in. You know, you can build up the money and it, it gives you confidence and you go for that next play and you just forget how much more money that will soak up. And then, of course, there's usually uh, the play might be right, but, but you know, you spend the money up front. So you spend all the money and it might take a while for it to pay off, but you get caught in the middle without enough cash and cash flow is the thing that will kill a business. It's not profit, it's cash flow that will always kill a business. So um, uh, so each time it's been um, – once was from a mistake. I ventured into the US about eight, eight nine years ago. And um, with a dream, you know, I, I do business in the US and I bought a wheel business, custom wheel business over there, another passion thing. And, you know, probably about a year or so in, it's like you got that feeling of going, I, I should not have I should not have got into this, right? Anyway, so we uh, you know, tore up a couple of million dollars over there and that sale was close to the wind too. If you blow two million in a small business, uh, it hurts. So things like that, some, some are mistakes and some are just uh, chasing opportunities. But I think if you haven't thought – you could lose the whole thing uh, every now and again. You're not, you're not trying hard enough. And how did you manage that stress? When sleeping time's got sleeping bills and alcohol or something probably, mate. You yeah. know, um, it's, it's horrible. But, but it's, uh, you have to do it because it, it, it's the thing that builds your resilience. If you, know what I mean? if, you, if, you, yeah. if you don't go through that and someone just tells you about it and, and um, you know, that's genuine skin in the game. Yeah, it's no use. It doesn't hurt at all to lose someone else's money, mate. Like it's not. That's not hard. 
on the person, yeah. it's hard on the people who lost Ask their the money. politicians. It's rocky, yeah. It's losing your own money. But I hate the thought of me losing someone else's money. But uh, losing your own um, is sobering. And so it teaches you things to about maybe what to do, not do next time or what to do. I always look at like big issues like that and adversities as like um, – um, what, what's the when you run and you jump over the things called a hurdle? Yeah, a yeah. hurdle. So I always look at them as hurdles, and I always think, well, every hurdle I jump over is a hurdle someone else isn't going to jump over. is is not going to is going to choose either not to try to jump over it or to they're too tired to jump over it. So every hurdle I go makes me stronger and is going to separate me more from competition or whoever it may be, and. Uh, and that always kind of helps me like, okay, don't let this be the one. I, I can get through this. And by getting through this, I'm going to be a lot stronger than I was before it. And someone else isn't going to get through it, which is going to put me in an even better position than I already was before it. Uh, do you have that? Uh, have you ever looked at it like that? Or that good. I think jumping the hurdles, as you've described it, gives you wisdom. All right? You think how valuable wisdom is. Yeah, people who haven't got wisdom blindly do things feel good, someone else has done it, and so I'm going to do it too. As you jump those hurdles, more than you jump, you become more wise about things. So sooner or later you start seeing the hurdles and you go, do I need to jump that hurdle or is there a better way around this? Yeah, that's I wisdom. See. So uh, that, you're that's much wisdom. wiser than me because I've just been jumping these things. You've figured out other way, you were yeah. just going under them. Well, sometimes you, you know, or you, you let someone else jump the hurdle. Yeah. And you stand back and well, watch them jump over. the hurdle and kick it over <laughs> while they try to jump it. I've yeah, done yeah. that a few times. Oh, then sometimes you let other people jump the hurdle and go, yeah, see, I'm glad I didn't do that. But uh, it is true. So some of it's, that's, that's being wise, uh, getting some wisdom into your system. Yeah. And wisdom only does come from experience. It's kind of like the yes. difference between reading how to swim and actually swimming. You yes, know, it's like uh, you got to try to swim to know what it is, <laughs> to know how to describe swimming to someone. Yeah, some people think you can read it. And I'm not saying uh, re- reading is great for you, it teaches you a lot of things, but you do not gain wisdom through reading. You gain wisdom through experience. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, so, wow, so three times you thought the business was out. And where is the business now? How, like how many staff or is it, how big is it? Yeah, so we're 35 people, 40 million turnover, uh, in very good health. Uh, our profits have been good. We did very well through COVID. Um, had, say, say you, we had the occasional... Uh, hiccup year for various reasons. You you got to have the odd bad years. Not never linear. You, you don't just continue to do well every single year. But the burst we've had through COVID in very good shape now. Uh, probably the certainly the, probably the best shape of our life as a business. Uh, Thirty three years on, so very happy about that because it means if you're still in good shape now, you know you've adapted to things and you're still bringing your your, your A game. Is your confidence like supreme by this point? Because like I can I, – I, Cubs nine almost and I can tell you I feel pretty supremely confident, <laughs> much more confident now than I did, for example. You know, sorry, every year I just get more confident. So I'm just trying to imagine being more than three times – having more than three times the experience that I currently have, I would be feeling pretty confident. <laughs> Do you have that um, feeling? No, I think uh, – look, I think uh, I describe it more as self-belief. Right, there's a difference between confidence and self-belief. Uh, self-belief is, is probably down your gut a bit further, I think. As some of you don't try and pretend, uh, as confident you can. So, but self-belief. But I think you got to wow. remember, I, I make Lies. my failures. Like, you know, and I, I'll probably overworry it. 
So I'll, 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 things won't be going right and I'll, I, I will act on it and I'll act on it quickly because I go, oh, this is, this is going to go bad. It's going to catastrophize. I'll catastrophize it, right? And it, some people think, oh, you shouldn't worry about that. You've done this so many times before. I go, no, I, you, that's your edge. You, you, you want to worry about it. You don't want to be too confident because you just think you'll blow through it. Um, and so, so making sure you stay humble with things I think is a good thing. But I will regularly have those years to go, uh, that could have gone really pear-shaped and it forces me to act on it and I act on things quickly about what's the fix, what are we going to do to get this right again and I'll take the necessary action and then I'll feel really good. And, and Whereas if I don't take the action, it gets to me, lose the sleep, gets agitated. So I think I've done that enough times and if you're trying hard, that should, that should happen in a, on a reasonably regular basis. If it doesn't happen to you, you you're playing within your capacity. But I like so action created or like action helped you prevent anxiety in the sense. Yep. It forces you, 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 you should be, instead of stressing over it forever, it should stress you and then you should act. It should stress you, force you to create a plan and then execute. And then do it. And th- then you'll get past it and go, okay, that, that wasn't near as bad as I thought. You handle it properly. You do all the, you do all the right things. And you have something new to stress about. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, we, and then you get, you're over it, right? You just move on to the next thing. I, I've seen people just agonize over it forever and something that should have been actioned in a, in a couple of short months, they've let it drag on for six. Now they're deeper in the hole. Now the, now the action you've got to take is far worse than had you taken it three months earlier. You're going to feel worse about it. You're going to be stressed about it and it's going to be harder to, to do and the deeper in the hole you get before you act, the harder it is to pull yourself out. So as you feel that slide going down into the hole, act to get out, right, because it's not – it does, never fixes itself is my experience. Mm. And what about decision-making? You know, you've made some big decisions how, and, and, and potentially some of them uh, were forced, you know, were forced action from a bad situation – I know from experience that often you're like, mm, shit, I could do this or I could do this. I'm not exactly sure which one's the correct mm. one. And if I choose wrong, maybe something bad could happen. How have you handled making good decisions and how I think have the you key, done it? Yeah, I think the key to that is don't – you should expect to make some bad ones. Uh, this whole bit about thinking you, you, you've got to spend enough time out so you only make good decisions is where the problem is. Uh, uh, my, my main thing is when to hold and when to fold. So, you know, when you're on a path that's not going well for you, you go, hang on, have I got to just stick this out longer and I'll get to the tipping point and it'll go great? Or do I fold and cut my losses? Single most challenging decisions you ever make. It's not what the decision is. It's having to make a decision. Are you going to keep pressing forward? Like, you know, everyone talks bigger, like, no, let's just double down on that. And I have done that. And what I did is lose twice the money I could have lost, right, by doubling down. But... The big talk is let's double down and we'll just push through it or I've, d- I've done this plenty of times. I mean, I'm going to say to my team, I'm going to burn the boats. You know, that old saying of you ride by a boat. If I want you to march up up the cliff face to all the natives, burn the boats because there's only one way to go now. now I've done that and um, I've won big and I've, I've, I've lost significant. Uh, it's still the hardest thing to do. So I, I just accept um, I will make uh, the wrong or bad decisions over time. And I just accept that. I, I don't blame anyone but myself. And it's a big thing about being solo here. I was just There's about to no say one that. else to blame, no one else to hide. It's my call. And I just go, yeah, got that timing wrong or the decision. I just go, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but then, then uh, magically, I, I never make 
two decision, two bad decisions in a row though, ever. Your next decision, you either learnt or something will happen, but the next, sometimes the next four or five big decisions will be absolutely spot on. And you sometimes wonder if I didn't make the bad decision, would these next four or five been as good as they are? I love that and way I of thinking And I take it that it. way, right? Yes, I love that way of thinking about it. It, it. Every down can have an equal up. Or more than equal. Or, or, yeah, every down multiple can, can multiply the up, but you had to be prepared to take the down, take the hit, right? Otherwise you play within the colour within the lines, gets a bit dull and boring, none of your decisions are big anyway. So they're easy to make right decisions when they're not significant because you don't even know if it was right or wrong. So if you're making the big calls, make make some bad ones, learn from it. I, I find you draw more confidence and acceptance out of the mistake or the timing. But but the, the decisions after that are somehow for me really clean and focused and right on the money. Yeah, you are very wise. That's a, I think that's a wisdom thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got to balance all that out and go, like now that's helped me set the move that several – moves in concession, it's almost like decisions that go bang, bang, bang. And if you can put three moves, strong decisions that make moves three in a row, it's very hard for someone to keep up with you, right? It's very hard for anyone to keep pace with that and it puts you in a very strong position if you can get that right. So when you look back and, you know, you're from Marylands, you didn't drop out of school, you finished in year 10. Yep to go into a trade, you know, that was your plan at that point in, in, in time. And fast forwards to now, you're an entrepreneur with a, a, a large, very successful business. So we to think back at that, like, how did I end up, how did I follow that path? You know, because it, it was, it sounds like it was the unexpected path to travel. Oh, the whole lot. I'm very unexpected. Um, I don't know how you, I think, um, Time in it does make you reflect back on things. I don't. I don't. I'm not big on looking backwards. Like I don't keep memorabilia. I don't have things. People go. Have you got a photo of you? Do I go? No, I didn't keep any photos. I got to. Scrape. That's a shame, though. Oh, stupid! Right. Be nice to get oh. your photo of your fax in your linen cupboard next to the towel. Oh, exactly. I should. I, all the stuff that was just there then. I didn't think were any big deal. So I didn't even take a photo. But I, I had to f- scrounge around and find a photo when I was a thirty. Because I started the business when I was thirty-three years old. So when I Done the 30, when I got 66, I'd done 33 years. I had a bit of a thing last year. And we'd scrounge around looking for a photo from back in the day, right? And um, I had hair and a moustache and tasseled shoes. I looked, looked very cool. I thought I thought it looked very cool. And uh, uh, so uh, I don't reflect much. I, I'm inclined to look forward all the time. So even if I got – and probably it's at, at, sometimes at your fault, I do not – a weakness I've got, I do not stop to smell the rose as well. I know we should do better at that. But if you don't reflect too much backwards and you're kind of always looking, so what's tomorrow hold? What's the next week hold? What's this year hold? Um, you're inclined not do it. And sometimes it's at your own expense because I just go, instead of going, wow, what a year, what a month, what a year, uh, and stop and go, oh, let's, let's go on an overseas trip. Let's celebrate it. No, I'll go, okay, it's a new year. Let's go. So, I, so my wife's on my case about that going, maybe you should take some time off or do something. But uh, the way I handle it, I, I do own some cars and it's my excuse because oh, sure. I'm in the car business. So the thing that makes me feel best is when I if I get a sort of rock star moment and go, no, that's a brain that is right, I go, I feel a new car coming. That's that's how that's how I handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can tell you 
many highly successful people like yourself have the same trait, always looking forwards. Um, um, I, I actually think most of them do. I think they like it, to be honest. Yep. I think that's just how they, what they like. Um, we do have to wrap up. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, if you, were to, um, if you were to share your greatest lesson in business, so if, if there was one lesson, there's just one thing you think someone should, should hear that's, that's about to start their business journey, what would that one thing be? And you can take your time. Yeah, look, it's interesting. Um, and it, I've probably got a certain perspective on this because of the time in the game, but I, I think you've got to remember that business is a marathon, not a sprint race. And so many people now want a lot of things so quickly. And I'm going, you, you, you need to nurture things. You need to start it and have a longer-term view all the time. So I make very few short-term significant decisions. They all fit into a longer-term play. And a little while ago I had like I came off 15, 20, I had a 15-year plan. 15 years, right? So it's a long time. And and those that plan had numbers on the end of it. So I try and picture your business go, well, how will it look in 15 years? And we landed exactly where I wanted to land it. But it's, uh, you know, I think that it's a, it's a marathon. Stop treating it like I want to be rich tomorrow, I want to be successful tomorrow, lay out the longer-term plan and stick with it, right, and expect the speed humps, expect to get bumped off it and you get back on the horse and you keep going. But uh, I think there's less of that these days. You know, people may be reading about someone starts something up and two years later sells it for a billion dollars. dollars. It's like, yeah, how often does that happen though, right? You know, I know it happens but rarely, right, because I think if you go, no, I'm in this for the long term, don't worry about selling the business and making all the money. You're not, you shouldn't be in business for the money. The last thing you should be in business, your own business for. But just, uh, uh, yeah, just accept it's, it's a marathon. Get used to running marathons. Oh, thank you. That's amazing. And to our listeners, if you want to get in contact with Bruce or check out book recommendations or, and other uh, favourite quotes and things, go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you'll find it there along with more information on all of our incredible guests. Or you can check out Cub on Instagram at Club United Business is our handle. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on today and, and, and for being part of Cub. Absolute pleasure, Daniel. Great talking with you. Hope you enjoyed the show.